Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Welcome, listeners, and thank you for tuning in today. Uh, before we get into our interview with uh, Dr. Ogi Ogas, who I, I will introduce, I want you to know that uh, archives of this program are available at the KZYX uh, website and also at the Mind, Body, Health, and Politics website. Furthermore, you can uh, email me at uh, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com, uh, for those of you who prefer to email rather than call in. And I think uh, they can actually email during the program, can't they, Michael? By uh, writing to um, Dr. Miller at KZYX. Will we get that immediately? You can give it a try if you like. Well, today we have Dr. Ogi Ogas, who has written a book along with his partner, Dr. Sai Gadam, called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. A Billion Wicked Thoughts is about what exactly the United States is watching on the Internet with regard to pornography. Yes, pornography. Dr. Ogi Ogas received his Ph.D. in computational neuroscience, and he will explain to us what computational neuroscience is, uh, from Boston University, where he designed mathematical models of learning, memory, and vision. Ogi was also a Department of Homeland Security fellow and conducted biodefense research at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. He went on to use his cognitive techniques from his brain research to win a half a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and he went on to battle Jeopardy phenomenon Ken Jennings in the finals of the Brainiac tournament called Grand Slam. Ogi writes about his book, a Billion Wicked Thoughts. The fact of the matter is that there's never been very good data about people's sexual proclivities, which is why the canvas of human sexuality has been like a Rorschach for us all to project our private fears and convictions upon. That's his quote. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ogi. Thank you, Richard. It's a real pleasure to be here. So to begin with, I told the our listeners that... Uh, you'd explain what a computational neuroscientist is. So sure. let's start there, some little background. Sure. So a computational neuroscientists study the brain, but we look at the brain as software. So we rarely get our hands dirty with actual laboratory work uh, in terms of cutting up actual brains or, or animals. Instead, we try to figure out the algorithms that operate in the human mind. And this was important for what we brought to our sexuality research because most people in my field study things like vision and memory and language, sort of the higher functions of the brain, trying to figure out the mental software behind those functions. But nobody had brought uh, the methodologies of computational neuroscience before to study sexuality. And so we thought, oh, gosh, maybe if we approach uh, the sexual brain in terms of, you know, what's the software, the, the algorithms, the, the processing in our sexual brain, maybe that would open up some new, some new insights. So that's really how uh, our research and our project began. 
But going, being a computational neuroscientist, which is a high level of science, and studying pornography or what, <laughs> or what the United States is looking at in pornography is a tremendous risk. Uh, you know that and I know that. Uh, I don't know if our listeners realize what a risk it is. Uh, I'll tell a little, a little story about that. Um, some years ago, many years ago, when I was in graduate s- school, I heard a lecture by a famous uh, professor um, uh, named uh, Hilgard, who was at Stanford, who developed something that called the Hilgard Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale. And he was giving our class a, a lecture on hypnosis, and, uh, and I said to him, you know, you, you made your reputation for 20 or 30 years as a rat psychologist, and now, full professor at Stanford, you're studying hypnosis. How does this come about to go from rat psychology to hypnosis? And he said, he said Richard, if I had gone into hypnosis early in my career, I never would have had a career. Because there are certain topics in psychology which if you start to study, they could end your career. And one of them is hypnosis, uh, and sexuality is another. And yet you took this risk. Uh, tell us about that. How did you come to take such a risk? And is it still a risk? Did you, did you get in trouble? I mean, we know, for example, that Kinsey got in a lot of trouble for, for his book. And, and, and uh, he lost funding, and, and he was called a communist for studying sexuality. How has it been for you? You're absolutely right that even today, Richard, there's still a tremendous prejudice surrounding doing actual science and research in the area of sexuality. And I, I can say when uh, my colleague uh, Saigadam and I first thought about doing this, we talked to a number of our uh, co- colleagues in computational neuroscience about our ideas of you know approaching sexuality from uh, a computational neuroscience point of view, and every single person, without exception, every single one told us not to do it. They said it would kill our careers. They said we're not going to find anything. Uh, they said you know that there's there's no future in it. Not a single person was in any way at all encouraging uh, of the prospect, even though you know. We felt very confident that there had to be some some low hanging fruit here. If there was this much resistance to 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 studying it, especially studying it from a new point of view, um, and but even though we made that case, every single person said this is this is a career killer. And even within the field of sex research, even today, um, it's still very hard to get support and funding for basic sex research. If you're, if you're going to try to get money from a, from a funding agency, you almost always have to frame it in terms of sexual health. That is, this is going to somehow directly lead to uh, physical health or, 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 or sexual health. If you say it's to have a deeper understanding of sexual proclivities, sexual interests, sexual behaviors, it's very, very difficult even today to get any kind of funding for, for it. So we still live in an age that is extremely uh, fearful and anxious about sex research. It goes really further than, than sexual research. I mean, it's really telling us something about who we are. You're going to tell us in this interview today about who we are in terms of watching pornography. But the very story that you tell about 100% of your colleagues telling you not to do this research, that's a story in and of itself, isn't it? And for me, it's related to the fact that we, ha- the, we, we live in a country where 
we, we supposedly have free speech, but I've got to tell you very carefully now that you must be meticulous about not using certain words when we talk <laughs> about your research, even though your book is full of all kinds of words because those words are on the Internet and those very words are the words that people are looking for on the Internet and you're going to have to find another way to describe those words than to use the words because if you use certain words, and what are words, Ogie? Words are, are grunts, right? They're, they're, they're sounds, right? And each little culture, each little group around the world made its own sound. So like, you, the, what country are you originally from? Uh, born here in America, though my father is a Mexican. Okay, fair enough. In, in Spanish, we have a word. They all agreed down there at one point. Uh, a chair is called a silla, right? Is that correct? Unfortunately, I don't. Oh, you don't know. Well, I think it is. It. <laughs> All right, but 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 window is, is ventana in Spanish, and we make the word. We make a sound with our with our voice, window, and everybody knows that it means this glass thing that you look out, you know, from the house. And in Spanish, they make another word. In Russian, they make another word. All they are is grunts. But if you grunt in a certain way on this program, I'm going to lose my job, and the station could get fined. Well, that's a real challenge, but I'll, I'll try to do my best. Uh, okay, but that's the world we live in. That's the country we live in. A country where a scientist is told not to do research, where a famous Stanford professor can't do research on, on hypnosis until he's a full professor 30 years later. And we also live in a culture, as you know, where a woman can have 48 triple D breasts. I'm allowed to say breast. Uh, 48 triple D breast and show 98.5% of her breast in public, no problem. But if she shows one other little piece of her breast that we call the word nipple, she can get arrested for, uh, for indecent exposure. That's the Absolutely world. Absolutely true. Okay, let's get back to your. That was a sidebar. Let's get back to <laughs> your, Let's get back to your research. So you you went against the tide. You and your and your colleague Saigadam, and tell us what you did. So, we knew to, in order to study the software of the sexual brain, we needed a lot of data. Data is what drives our field, and that's really what opened up this huge opportunity for us because we looked around and said, "Well, how can we get some data on sexual behavior?" And we immediately thought, "Well." the internet. The internet is going to give a lot of detailed data about a lot of different kind of people. And when we first set out to do this, we assumed that there were many researchers out there that had probably were already doing this. So we weren't expecting to, to be pioneers. We just at first thought we'd go use other people's data. And we quickly discovered that nobody in sex research was yet mining internet data. And even more than that, we were absolutely shocked to find out that there really hadn't been any systematic science done on human sexual interests since Alfred Kinsey, which was back in the late 40s and early 50s, that the most systematic, comprehensive analysis of uh, what turns men and women on was done more than 50 years ago. And since then, nobody's tried to replicate or extend his research, uh, primarily because of the politics that you've been talking about. That is, it's very hard to get... <laughs> funding or support to do just raw research on what uh, arouses men and women. So not only were, were we shocked to find that nobody was yet using Internet data, we were just as startled to find out that there really was very little knowledge 
about the true distribution of sexual interest in the population. Uh, there was guesses, but there was no uh, source of just, you know, given a thousand people, how many of those thousand people were turned on by breasts versus how many were turned on by butts, you know, simple stuff like that. There was no good data. So what we did was we tried to get our hands on every kind of internet data related to sexual behavior that we could. So we got hold of more than a billion individual searches. We got hold of about 650,000 people's, individual people's search histories. We looked at the million most popular websites in the world and figured out which of those million most popular websites were erotic websites and then looked at traffic patterns to those websites. We looked at purchases uh, on sexual websites. We analyzed more than a million erotic stories online. We got more than 10,000 romance novels, uh, digitized romance novels, and analyzed the text in those. Uh, we looked at downloads. We looked at clicks. We looked at tags. Uh, any kind of Internet data that we could get, uh, we got our hands on. A, a number of uh, proprietary sites, uh, commercial sites were willing to share their internal data on user behavior of the site. So we really got – a lot of people think all we did was look at searches, and we certainly looked at searches, but really our, our, our research went far beyond simple searches to look at just uh, all kinds of patterns uh, of behavior online. So – and all this data, we were the first researchers to actually look at it. So I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, Richard, there was a moment when, you know – for my colleague Sai and I, we were literally the first people to look at a pretty detailed portrait of human sexuality. We could see for the first time across the entire planet, you know, the popularity of different sexual interests with clarity for the very first time. And, and, and that was an exciting moment and also in some ways a very uh, disorienting and, and uh, anxious moment, too. How long did it take you from start to finish to analyze the data and how many individual bits, how many million individual bits of behavior did you analyze? So we spent roughly a year just getting data and then we spent roughly a year analyzing the data. And you ask uh, how much data we had. Well, our data is accurate to the entire world internet pop using population which is, at the time we did a research, was about 1.5 billion people. So uh, because some of our data was collective across the entire Internet. So, for example, traffic patterns uh, in terms of what are the most popular uh, erotic websites, that was data based on the behavior of everybody on the planet. And we also have data uh, on you know, different countries as well. So we actually... You know, some people say that our, our data is limited to just, you know, people, people uh, looking at pornography in America, but that's, that's not true. We have a lot of data on that, but we have data that does reflect the entire global population. And uh, so but you, I'd say – go ahead. No, please. I'd say our, our richest data is the individual search histories. Those are primarily people in North America. It comes from America Online. They, uh, in one of the most notorious uh, examples of a corporate blunder, they released uh, the search histories for 650,000 uh, individual users and made that public. Now, they tried to anonymize the data, which is why they went ahead with it, but it turned out that if you have you know, extended search histories 
of individuals, it's possible to figure out, you know, who they are. And, and so it turned out to be not nearly as anonymous uh, as everyone expected. These days, you know, we have much higher expectations of privacy. And one of those reasons is because of the America Online blunder. But for us, it was wonderful because we got access to, you know, more than half a million people's uh, specific sexual proclivities over a period of time. And that's probably our single best uh, data set. Though we also have uh, plenty of other data sets that are very rich. So you literally have, have had, you're not exaggerating in your book when you say a billion wicked thoughts, you literally have over billions of pieces of information. From all, over, from all over the world. And, and I, I, I think it's very important, and the reason I'm spending time on this until we, before we actually get into what you found is because of the politics of, those, of this. Namely, if two scientists can spend two years and come up with the specifics that we're going to hear about, about what a billion and a half or more people are doing on the internet on one topic, pornography. If two scientists can do that, then it should be clear to all listening that our government, with, a, with huge, huge computers and an army of scientists, how they can be analyzing everything that we are saying in our, in our tweets, in our emails, in our, in our texts, and in every other aspect of our internet life, isn't that true? Absolutely. And Absolutely. that's in a way, it's a bit. Our, our research is a bit frightening because of the implications for, you know, for, for someone that actually knew the identity behind the people. And we don't know people's identities in, in in almost any case, but certainly for a government or even for you know an organization like Google or Microsoft or, or Apple that has access to personal data, uh, the amount of information they have about us is you know is downright disconcerting. So hear ye, hear ye, what you put out on the Internet and what you look at on the Internet is public information. It's not private information. Caveat. It's not uh, caveat emptor is let the buyer beware, let the user beware. Uh, Okay, so that's by background. Now, the other thing important for our listeners to know and for all of us to know, that prior to your work, research the limited amount, Kraft Ebbing in 1886 and Kinsey in the 1950s, the research in human sexuality was interviewing people and therefore we were dependent upon their honest response or dishonest response. And you have taught us in your book that people are not necessarily forthcoming, they're embarrassed in front of the interviewers. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, that's an excellent and, and critical point, that until we did our research, uh, virtually every bit of research on human sexuality that had been done relied on self-report, basically a subject saying what they liked or what they did or how they behaved. And not only are people embarrassed uh, to admit that to an interviewer or, or you know, willing to lie to an interviewer, people lie to themselves, too. I, I, it's certainly the case that people might not be willing to really... Uh, honestly analyze their own behavior uh, as well or what t- truly turns them on. But So the data that we collected online is what people actually did. It's what they actually looked at, searched for, clicked on, read, rated, viewed, purchased, downloaded. So, so these are, you know, indisputable acts that can't be <laughs> explained away. So uh, it really, not only were we the most comprehensive uh, 
snapshot of people's sexuality. It was the first reliable, objective snapshot as well, one that didn't rely on merely on a person's willingness to share the intimate details of, of their life. Yes, and the one last thing, again, before we go directly into, the, into what you discovered, is something delightful that you pointed out in your book, which is that, as many of us know, uh, a, a great deal of research in psychology in this country uh, is done on people in psychology classes because that's the cheapest and easiest way to get subjects. Otherwise, you go out into the public and it's, it's time-consuming, much more time-consuming and expensive than simply walking into a class and giving them a form and so on and tell them what to do. Tell us, what, tell us all about the word weird and what we know, what we know about the word weird. Sure, you're pointing out. So weird is um, it, it's a term by referring to the fact that this is not limited to uh, sexual research, but uh, almost all research, not just in psychology, but in the social sciences, pretty much uses what, what are often called convenience samples or convenience populations. They're using people that are easy to get access to. And um, the most common uh, example of this, as you pointed out, is, is college students. And this is particularly a problem uh, when it comes to sex research, because college students are in no way typical of, of human sexuality. I mean, uh, it, you know, college students have uh, complete freedom. They have very little responsibility. They're at a time in their physical life when, uh, you know, they're awash in hormones, so their sexual interests are, are, are at, you know, something of a peak. And so much, yet so much of sex research is based on uh, uh the choices and decisions and behaviors of uh, of college students. So WEIRD itself is an acronym that refers to, I, I might miss some of this, it's Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic, referring to the populations that uh, comprise something like uh, more than 95% of all of our research. And the fact of the matter is, uh, even though we care the most about people who are weird, that is Western educated, industrialized, and rich, uh, these are not necessarily representative of humanity as a species. And once again, when it comes to sexuality, our, we can assume our sexuality is something very deeply rooted, something very biological, and that perhaps, you know, focusing on Western rich educated people, particularly rich <laughs> educated Western college students, is not going to give us an accurate sense of uh, the true nature of human sexuality. Okay, so now we've got the background. We're in... Dr. Ogi Ogas and Dr. Saigadam, Ogi's with us right now, they did not interview people. Uh, they did not hand out questionnaires. They didn't study Western-educated, industrialized, rich and democratic college students. What they did was they analyzed what we and people around the world are actually looking at what we're actually looking at, what our interests really are. So with that, tell us about some of your findings, please. So I'd say the, the most, at the broadest level, the most important finding was that men and women's sexual behavior and sexual interests are very, very different. I, I think we all know that men and women are different when it comes to sex, but uh, we were surprised at just how different uh, they truly were. And I should say, when we went into this, you know, our, our background wasn't in sexuality. So uh, we really didn't know what to expect. And if anything, uh, you know, 
going into it naively, we sort of expected that there would be a lot of overlap between male and female sexual behavior. So for, for us personally, it was a surprise just how radically different uh, men and women are. Uh, at the same time, another surprise, certainly for us, was that gay men and straight men are virtually identical when it comes to sexual behavior. Uh, pretty much the only difference when it comes to the behavior of gay men and straight men is that uh, gay men prefer to look at uh, men and, and straight men prefer to look at women. But in terms of the, the form and the content and the patterns of, of sexual behavior, virtually identical. And the same holds true for uh, straight women and lesbian women. Uh, again, straight women and lesbian women are much different than men, but they're very similar to one another. Uh, that is probably the single uh, broadest, biggest finding, but I'd say the most important finding in terms of relevance uh, to almost everyone and in terms of the field of sex research is the fact that there's one sexual interest that we all have in common. In fact, it's the only sexual interest we all have in common, men and women, gay and straight, and yet this sexual interest is completely unacknowledged and unappreciated in the scientific literature, and even among many uh, clinicians, too. And that interest is domination and submission. That is, power themes relating to one person having power over the other. And we find almost an infinite number of creative variations of domination and submission themes but you'll find this running through every kind of erotica, both hardcore pornography for men, romance novels, erotic stories for women, by women, uh, gay content, uh, lesbian content. It runs through just about everything. And I would say, in our opinion, uh, a person's preference and taste along the, line, along the axis of domination and submission is as fundamental to a person's sexual identity as their sexual orientation. We all understand the importance of sexual orientation, whether you're attracted to men or women or both. Uh, and I'd say after doing our research that a person's domination submission orientation is absolutely as fundamental and universal and yet uh, completely overlooked. When we started our research, uh, an interest in domination or submission was treated as a obscure, uh, atypical, abnormal fetish rather than sort of a central part of human sexuality. But those are the, the, the very broad top-level findings. And then, of course, we have lots of uh, specific interesting findings, too. So you're saying, if I understand you, that the common theme amongst men, women, gay women, gay men, the common theme amongst all four of those groups is that they're all interested in what they look at and what they get involved with on the Internet and is our, our power themes domin about and, and dominance and uh, um, submission. Is that correct? Did I get it right? That's right. That is the one thing that is we all share in common, the one place our, our sexualities overlap. Um, outside of that, men and women have very little in common sexually, but we can find, uh, we can find common ground when it comes to these power themes. That's right. Now, we're talking about using the word sexuality, but also the word pornography. How does sexuality become pornography, or what's the relationship between those two? I'd say it's actually quite straightforward. So pornography is visual erotica, and more than that, it's the preferred form of erotica for men. So men like looking at things. Uh, by a huge margin, men much prefer to look at pictures and videos than any other form 
of uh, sexual content. And so uh, if we just simply label visual erotica pornography, uh, pornography is mostly uh, the exclusive realm of men. Uh, there's, there's some exceptions, which I'll probably talk about later. But uh, for the most part, women are not very interested uh, in pornography. Women tend to prefer uh, textual content. So we might call that erotica. Uh, some people do. But uh, women prefer to read stories uh, and books and have forms of erotica that are based on communication and interaction. Uh, so uh, women not as interested in, in, in looking at things, but for men, absolutely. <laughs> when it comes to erotica, they want pornography. Well, prior to the Internet, uh, for a man to look at pornography, he, he would have to either go to some place where people were doing sexual acts, right? Or maybe he That's could right. look in books and see pictures, and then eventually, I guess starting with Playboy in the United States, he could look at magazines, uh, but and women could, could read books and so on. So you could differentiate there. Women were reading stories. Men might be looking at pictures and books or looking at magazines. Or like when we were kids, we would look at National Geographic. That was the best right. we could do, right? right? Or maybe the Sears and Roebuck underwear catalog. Yeah. Uh, but now everyone can look at live sexual acts just by pushing a button on their computer. Has this changed women's and men's interest like for, are more women now looking at the uh, at live sexual uh, acts on uh, because of the fact that it's so easy or are they still pretty much like the story and the storyline well first it is worth mentioning like you pointed out that if you can imagine say in the 1960s that you told america that they were going to very soon have the ability to watch pornography 24 hours a day in the comfort of their own home and watch absolutely any kind of pornography their mind thought of in great diversity uh, for free at any moment, uh, I, I'm sure most people would have thought that's going to signal the end of the world, or at least the collapse of civilization as we know it. So truly, uh, what we have today is, we're all used to it now, but really, uh, it's downright astonishing uh, what we're able to do and, and what is done. And in a way, the, the, the very fact that we have uh, integrated this kind of immense access to sex, uh, to pornography without any kind of disruption to society, that's certainly worth noting, too. I mean, there were times in the past when people believed that uh, pornography, which at the time was limited, like you said, to Playboy magazines and going to a theater, physical theater downtown to watch it, at, people were worried that that alone was going to uh, cause uh, increased numbers of sexual violence and sexual perversions and, and a disruption of civilization. So the fact that we now have unlimited pornography uh, and still society goes along just fine, uh, that alone is, is, is worth uh, observing. But you did point out uh, the interesting thing. Men have had easier time getting access to erotic content, pornography, over the years, including before, long before the Internet. For women, however, it's been a very different story because women aren't as interested in pornography. They're not, most women are not interested in looking at visual erotica. So there really actually hasn't been uh, erotica for women that has been much available. Uh, there's been romance novels, and romance novels really took off in the 1970s, and those uh, fulfilled some of women's interests. But 
one of the most interesting things about the internet is to see once women finally did have the ability to access erotica in freedom and comfort and security. Because uh, keep in mind, you know, for a single woman to go into, you know, uh, a red light district movie theater in the inner, inner part of a city would just be downright dangerous. And, and most women uh, would feel embarrassed to go into uh, the dirty section of a video store or of a bookstore to get, uh, you know, an erotic book or, or rent an erotic movie. So when the Internet came along, for the first time, women could explore their sexual, their sexual interests with, in freedom and comfort and so what did they do? And one of the most interesting things is that a whole new form of erotic content sprung up uh, by women, for women, and it's known as fan fiction. So these are mostly short stories, mostly created by women, uh, amateur women, and they consist of stories taken from popular books and TV shows and movies. For example, for a long time, the most popular fan fiction was around Harry Potter and the Twilight series of uh, books and movies, uh, and even Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So not all fan fiction is sexual, but a large portion of it is sexual and romantic. And it's almost exclusively the domain of women. And this absolutely, fan fiction absolutely exploded on the Internet uh, once women uh, had the freedom to do this. So it's, it was very interesting to see this because one of the, big differences between the world of fan fiction and the world of pornography is that pornography for men is a very solitary experience. Men pretty much go online alone, look at what they want to look at, uh, enjoy themselves, and then get, get offline. They don't share their experiences with other men. They don't socialize over these experiences. These are private, isolated experiences. But for women, when women read erotic stories online, they want to talk about it. They want to communicate about it. And there's entire communities that have sprung up around fan fiction and around erotic stories and romance novels and erotic books in general, where women share their thoughts and feelings and reactions to different erotica they've read. And that's a very, very different kind of uh, behavior than what we find among men. So it seems that women all these years were waiting for an opportunity to have a safe comfortable way to express their sexuality, which turned out to be very textual-based and very interactive. For women, even erotica is far more of a social experience than it ever was and than it is right now for men. You're, the voice you just uh, were listening to was Dr. Ogi Ogas, who, along with his colleague, Dr. Sai Gadam, wrote this book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Uh, we're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. This book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, is uh, for sure uh, the most comprehensive uh, piece of research that's ever been done uh, in, in recorded history uh, on pornography and what uh, people are looking at uh, on the Internet on pornography. Um, Ogi, you, you write in your book that... Uh, the American medical profession, which until recently was uh, mostly made up of men, has at various times in recent years uh, called uh, masturbation uh, morally wrong or, or, or deviant or aberrant, bisexuality, homosexuality, uh, anal sex, and, and various other uh, sexual activities, they've called it morally wrong and bad and sick and crazy and stupid and so on. 
and uh, and that is you know is is somewhat changing. Um, is the internet, uh, which is run, I mean the the films that are made for the internet are made mostly, if not exclusively, by men. So, isn't that to a certain extent directing people's taste because? I mean, just like when we go to a clothing store, we can only choose from what the manufacturers and the designers are presenting to us. And so by the same token on the Internet and pornography, we can only look at what these people, mostly in some factory down in Los Angeles, are producing. Uh, How much is that affecting not only what we look at, but affecting our very taste? So that's part of my question. And the second question is, are there movies being made by women for women that women are actually watching in addition to reading stories? So that's an excellent question. And even though I have a strong answer, an informed answer, I think ultimately uh, more research needs to be done. But I will say that I am fairly confident that uh, these pornography producers are not do not have much effect on influencing our taste. And, and here's why. Here, here's why I believe this. People who are producing pornography for money, so these are the people that make movies, or more importantly these days, people that run websites uh, with erotic content, they want to be successful. So they're very sensitive to what people want to look at. So they're putting up on their sites the very material that people want to look at and click on uh, the most. And we've seen... Uh, relative stability in terms of the most popular kinds of uh, topics and subjects uh, among for male pornography. So the things that we see over and over again, for example, youth uh, pornography with you know young women, including uh, teenage women, has always been popular. It remains extremely popular, and that's because that in every culture. Uh, in every country on the planet that we looked at, youth is very popular. Uh, sometimes producers produce some new material, you know, that, that caters to uh, an unusual sexual interest. And, and if it doesn't get a lot of clicks, if it doesn't get a lot of interest, then they don't push it anymore and they don't include it on their website. So just like any commercial uh, enterprise on the Internet, they try to give people what they want to see. So it, it, they're not trying to influence taste as much as react to taste. So if, and, I, if I understand you, what you're saying then is that they might float out a, a several dozen balloons, you know, people having sex with flagpoles, people having sex with women, people having sex with dogs, people having sex with automobiles, and then they do a, a, an analysis of what people actually click on in order to then generate more mo- uh, movies of that genre. Is that how it works? That, that's it. That's basically it. And so the things that have always been popular continue to be popular. Now, you might, there might be an effect here, of course, uh, sort of a, a feedback system, since the, the things that are already popular are probably destined to continue to be popular uh, for the simple fact that uh, the things that were popular in the past are going to be most prominent now, which is going to be the most influential to the new generation of men. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a there are forces which will tend to make it static, but it's certainly the case that any kind of pornography, uh, erotic material you can think of, is available. It is out there, and if there was you know, more of an audience for different kinds of 
uh, of taste, believe me, there's no shortage of people that would rush to cash in on that taste. So, I think um, I think I read in your book where, where you said, if you can think of it, somebody's already made a movie about it. A- absolutely. In fact, since we've done our research, there's been a rather a, a narrowing. There was actually greater variety of sexual content available when we started our research these days, uh, because. The, the websites are catering to larger and larger audiences. They, ch- they need more and more popular material. You can think of like, they're, they're like network TV shows where they don't like to take risks. They want to try to come up with new TV shows that cater to a broad a segment of the population as possible. So uh, a lot of people think that the Internet's pushing men to more and more deviant tastes. If anything, the Internet's kind of a, uh, the forces keep pushing it towards the same tastes uh, that we've always had. But here's the interesting thing. I said there's another reason why I'm pretty confident that uh, the internet's reflecting taste rather than influencing taste, and that's once again women. Uh, women created the, the greatest co- uh, concentration of new content has happened for women by women. Uh, fan fiction virtually did not exist at all before the internet. It did exist, but it was a tiny, tiny portion of the population even knew about it. It's absolutely exploded on the internet, and that was because Women, this was a kind of content women wanted to see and wanted to respond to. It just didn't exist. And they started to create it, and the more they created, the more popular it became. So watching women's erotic content online uh, come online and develop into you know, large global communities, we could see there was, in fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, an opening where a, a taste was not being fulfilled, and quickly you know, a number of websites thousands, tens of thousands of websites have arisen to cater to females' taste. And you asked about, uh, you know, why aren't there uh, more pornographic movies by women for women? Or, you know, men certainly have dominated the production of movies and visual content. You know, perhaps we'll see now uh, more uh, female-driven content when it comes to pornography. And actually, uh, people don't realize this, but there is no shortage of erotic movies made by female producers and directors for women. So there is plenty of female-friendly porn out there, but the fact of the matter is most women are just not interested in looking at it. A lot of people have suggested that the reason women don't like pornography is because it's targeting men and it caters to men's taste. And while that's true, whenever women create pornography that does cater to women's tastes, or what they think are women's tastes, and by that it's typically movies that are more character-driven with a greater emphasis on emotions and relationships, you know, what many people might consider to be a softer kind of pornography, relationship-driven pornography. The fact is women aren't much interested in looking at that either. Uh, In fact, when you look at the kind of pornography that women prefer the most, there are far more women looking at hardcore male-targeted pornography than looking at so-called female-friendly pornography. There's not huge audiences for either, but definitely, if a woman does like pornography, she's far more likely to like the same stuff that men does, that men do, than to like uh, female-friendly uh, pornography. So that that was uh-huh. a real surprise. And and but the, 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 you, I think you cite in your book that there is a percentage there uh, of women who do like to watch and do watch pornography. You did discover that it's not like zero. That's right. It's hard to get an exact number on that, but our best guess would be between somewhere between 20% and 35% of women hmm. uh, do enjoy looking at visual erotica. That mm-hmm. is, do look, enjoy looking at pornography. But uh, certainly, 
a majority of women are just not interested in looking at any kind of pornography. Yeah. So what are men interested in? What are they most interested in? And when and the 20 to 30 percent of women who watch, what are they most interested in? So for the men, uh, much easier to know. Uh, let me just say a general thing, too, about doing re- uh, research on, on sexual behavior and sexual taste. Men are far easier to study just from a methodological point of view, from a from a data crunching point of view, men are very easy to study and women are very, very hard to study. Uh, men are easy to study because they search for the same kinds of things over and over and they have very consistent behaviors and patterns and it's very easy to see what men, what men want to look at. For example, uh, the single most common taste sexual interest for men are, is youth, is uh, uh, young women or young men in the case of, of gay men. Uh, but even more broadly than that, men are very interested in age. Age is the broadest category that men use to qualify their searches. So even though uh, teenagers and young women are the most popular, there's a great deal of interest in older women, too, in middle-aged women. And even, this is another big surprise in our research, in older women, it's often called granny porn. Uh, these consist of women in their 50s and even in their 60s, and there seems to be a those small, significant, and consistent uh, level of interest in, in granny porn uh, in every culture that, that we looked at. Uh, but that's, it's very easy to track men's interest in age. But by contrast, women's searches and women's behavior is much more open-ended and harder to figure out. Uh, you know, a, a man might search for you know, young teens over and over again. And many men search for young teens, but a woman might search for something like stories about uh, cowboys uh, in set in the 19th century. Or they might say, you know, um, naked pictures of uh, Brad Pitt. But they're not very consistent. Women change their searches, you know, uh, women do not search for the same thing over and over again. A lot of their searches are sentences, you know, more elaborate, where it's very hard to sort of, you know, uh, code exactly, you know, exactly what are they looking for here. You know, we can say, oh, they're looking for a story, but, you know, what's their interest? You know, is it cowboys? Is it a, a historical drama? Is it the relationship? It, it, it's much harder to, to simplify. So women, much harder to, to study from a methodological point of view. Um, some other interests that were surprises for us uh, in terms of men's taste was weight. So uh, men are very focused on the weight of women. And even though the number one interest for men is women of uh, a healthy weight, uh, what the Center for Disease Control calls a healthy weight, um, it turns out that men are far more interested in overweight women than underweight women. In fact, we found there's three times as many searches for fat women than for skinny women when it comes to uh, pornography. And there's plenty of sites, very popular sites, devoted to uh, heavier women, sometimes called BBW for, for big, beautiful women. Uh, again, popular in every culture that we looked at all around the world. So uh, even though you know women tend to think that men are mostly interested in looking at very skinny models, the kind of models they often see, see on women's fashion magazines, uh, when it comes to what Guys are actually looking at, you know, the privacy of their laptop. Uh, there's a lot of interest in heavier women. Uh, so that was a big surprise. Certainly the interest in older women, like I mentioned, 
was another big surprise. The weight issue. Uh, when I read the weight issue in your book that men, you know, how, how interested men are in overweight or what you call fat women, it gave me a whole new slant on what I've been talking about on the radio now for at least 10 years, which is a deep concern from a health perspective of the fact that 67% of our American public right now are obese or overweight. But I never, ever thought of it in any way that might be a way to get to be sexually attractive. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. For most of our, the history of our species, a woman with a few extra pounds was far more likely to be healthier and more fertile than a woman with a few less pounds. So through most of our uh, you know, prehistoric and, and ancient times, you'd rather, if you're going to find a mate, a mate with, you know, that's a little bit heavier is more likely to uh, survive longer and be healthier and bear more children. So probably that's that's where this is rooted in genetic hardwiring, uh, a genetic hardwiring towards uh, interest in in uh, in overweight. From that's a, right. From a, from a, a procreation point of view. Okay, what else? Are, what else are men interested in? They're interested in youth. They're interested in people, women who are overweight. Are there particular behaviors that men watch more than other behaviors? Well, what one thing I would like to point out: one of the biggest surprises. Uh, that, that baffled us at first, though I, I think we've got a pretty good handle on this now, was we looked at the parts of the body that men were most interested in looking at. Uh, that's a pretty easy thing to, to, to analyze. And uh, the number one piece of anatomy uh, for men is breasts, which is probably not too big of a surprise. That was consistent across cultures, which might be a little more surprising. Some people think that uh, an interest in breasts is, is you know, exclusively a Western cultural Interest, but we found that everywhere, including uh, you know South America, Asian countries, uh, Middle Eastern countries, uh, any place that had internet, they're looking at breasts. But the real surprise uh, was men's interest in looking at penises, and this is particularly among straight men. I, I don't think it's any surprise that gay men are going to look at penises, but uh, in fact, more straight men, heterosexual men, are looking at penises than looking at buttocks uh, and feet, uh, looking at women's buttocks and women's feet. Uh, And when we first saw this, we were a little bit surprised. And uh, so when we look at it closer, we find that, you know, men in particular are not just interested in looking at penises, they're interested in looking at large penises, as large penises as possible. And, you know, when we first were sharing this discovery with with people, uh, the two most common reactions we would get were women... Most women would say, oh, that's because men want to check out the size of what they've got compared to other men. And that's definitely not it. But I can, I think a lot of women might check out other women's bodies to compare to their own. So they're just imagining that, that men are doing the same. But that's not it. Uh, when we talked to gay, gay men about it, gay men said, oh, it's because even straight men secretly have some homosexuality in them that's, re- that's being suppressed. And, and you're finding that, you know, really most men have some gay side. We don't think it's that either. Uh, when we look, when you look at the actual erotica that men are looking at that features uh, penises, that features large penises, it always involves the woman's reaction to the penis. So you, you almost never see a penis without a woman's face uh, nearby. And when you look at the, the movies and, and, and the stories that are around these large penises, it, the emphasis is on the woman's reaction, whether she's scared or surprised or amazed or dazzled or frightened or uh, excited, that's where the emphasis is. So it's seeing the woman's emotional reaction with the penis together. 
still, that might be a little baffling why that might be. And we think the answer is this also comes from our evolutionary past. If you look at all of the other primates, chimpanzees, gorillas, uh, monkeys, bonobos, all of our primate cousins, uh, the males focus on other males' penises. The penises are very prominent and important tool to uh, exchange information about social rank, about aggression, about marking territory, and of course about sexuality. So uh, all of our primates use the penis as a sign for all of these things. It's not really a surprise that we too, uh, the men too, are looking at it and also showing it. And this also explains why exhibitionism, which is usually considered to be a psychological problem, you know, or a deviant behavior, uh, exhibitionism is much more widespread uh, than people believe. And we really see this on the internet, because on the internet, when you have video cameras set up, webcam set up, you find that huge numbers of men are constantly pointing their webcam at their own penis. Uh, so we think this interest in showing your penis and looking at other men's penis, uh, particularly with, with, with an emotional reaction associated with the, with the penis, um, that this is probably just this, another vestigial primitive primate behavior that we've just been uh, oblivious to. One of the things that I've run into in my practice, and uh, which I think your book is going to benefit uh, a great deal, is the fact that so often I hear men, when they do reveal to me uh, things that they look at or things that they do, they have a concern, a deep concern, that what they're doing is somehow abnormal or aberrant or morally wrong. And what your book is bringing out is, is that these are just part of the human condition, whether it's looking at penises or looking at breasts or, or, or that women like stories, that this is just part of who we are, neither good nor bad, neither sick, crazy, or stupid. There is such an immense gap between what we, what we know what we think we know about sexual taste and the truth about sexual taste, what society tells us are normal, common, typical tastes, and what the data shows are the real uh, prevalence of sexual taste. And just a huge gap. And that's what the single biggest contribution of, of the research we did is hopefully to narrow that gap. People feel so much shame and guilt and anxiety over their sexual interests, like you point out, uh, because they don't have access to accurate knowledge about just how common or natural or normal these tastes are. And time and again in our data, we found you know, sexual interests that turn out to be very common, universal, you know, in every culture, such as an interest in looking at penises. Uh, and in the public perception, these interests are considered rare or abnormal or atypical. And unfortunately, even many clinicians uh, professional clinicians, sex therapists, and sex scientists, you know, have been promoting, you know, wrong notions, wrong information about this too, which has just made things worse. And, you know, certainly the data in our book, I hope, goes a long way to, you know, swash people about their sexual interests. I, I often get people writing me emails, you know, asking about this or that sexual interest they have, and if it's unusual or normal. And almost always, it turns out it's one of the most common interests in our data, it's just not widely known because outside of the research we did, it's really hard to find information about these sexual interests. So. Yes. You know, we've got about 60 seconds left, and I have one question uh, to, to wrap it up with, and that is, of, of the total uh, use of the Internet, 
can you tell us, uh, give us an idea of what percent of the total is uh, traffic is sexual? It's actually much lower than people might think. So in terms of uh, the million most popular websites in the world, only 4% of them are sexual websites, only 4% out of the top million. In terms of the number of searches for sex, we looked at uh, a half billion searches on one search engine, and only 11% of those searches were for sexual content. So uh, really, it's a relatively small percentage, still pretty huge in terms of absolute numbers, but uh, you often see online numbers bandied about that, you know, one half of all yes. internet traffic is sex or porn. Not not close to those numbers, but okay. uh, much, much smaller. So in absolute numbers, we're looking at a lot of pornography, but percentage-wise to what everything we're doing, it's not that great a percentage. I have to wrap up here. I've got to have you back, Ogie, because there's so much more I want to ask you about this book and that I'd like our listeners to hear, and I hope you will come back. I'd love to come back. Uh, that, would you, be, that would be great. Thank you so much. This is, uh, we had Dr. Ogie Ogas. His book is A Billion Wicked Thoughts. You really want to take a look at it. It, it, it just has chock full of information uh, way beyond uh, what we've had in the past from Kinsey and, and his wonderful researchers. So we're going to do more on this topic. And thank you all. Thank you for listening to today's great program on mind, body, health, and politics. And, and it's made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my good friend, Mike Delora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.